Welcome to Squawk. My name is Luke. I'll be hosting the show along with my co-host, Dr. Brian Nixon. We're in season two, episode three. It's hard to believe how quickly the weeks are going by. We've got a lot of ground to cover. As you may already know from listening to our other episodes, we've gone a little bit longer than normal. We don't necessarily intend to do that on this show. Last week, if you haven't heard it, you need to hear it. We have a former LDS member who's speaking out about that. The first week is Jehovah's Witnesses. And what we're looking at as a theme is cults and solutions. Now, the ones we've dealt with up to this point have largely been cults of Christianity, but we will be touching on other cults that are either popular or are maybe non-Christian cults that people are aware of that are still in existence. We're going to be touching on those because they're important worldviews. And even if they're not prominent worldviews, those worldviews that allow that type of thinking are very pervasive. And we're going to be speaking about that particularly today as we cover Scientology. There's sort of a morbid fascination that people have with cults, and that's understandable to wonder why in the world do people go there? Why do they? We're going to talk about some of that today. And we're also going to do our best, sans a guest from that particular background, to tell you how best to reach them if they're open to it. So that being said, that's what we're covering in the show today. We're going to start off with our five minutes of what's happening at Calvary College. And Brian, if you want to jump right in. Luke, it's great to be with you. And again, really, you showed me or you sent me via email that our last podcast has been one of our most successful about yes. uh, uh, Mormonism, LDS. Again, we thank Caden Ritchie for joining us at last episode. It, it takes a lot of courage and boldness to you know share your story when you've come out from one of those. And lest I forget, sound engineer Daniel, who often doesn't get mentioned, but is faithful nonetheless, and that's totally on me, not due to a lack of importance. He is absolutely essential to the production of this show and becoming more so every week. That's right. So thank you, Daniel. Well, at the at Calvary College this week, Luke, we covered, finished up Luther, and then we got into the Radical Reformation. And the bridge to that is, of course, Zwingli. And Zwingli, if you, if you will, was a cross between Lutheran ideals and Radical Reformation ideals. Um, he ended up, of course, dying in battle when Charles V pushed Roman Catholic troops back into Germany to try to offset the spread of Protestant ideals. He tried to squelch it, and Zwingli lost his life in, in one of those battles. But then we moved into Anabaptism and talked about Anabaptists and some of the key leaders, Mino Simmons and others. Of course, Mino Simmons, Mennonites, and the Amish and Brethren, and a lot of these groups kind of have their foundations in this part of the world. So it was really good. And, of course, we're also um, reading in our class original sources from the era. And mm -hmm. so we're still making our way through Imitation of Christ by Thomas Akempis. And uh, he himself, Thomas Akempis, was a member of, of a community called Brethren of the Common Life. And before we confuse Brethren of the Common Life with the Brethren of today, they're, they're separate. Brethren, or, yeah, yeah. They're, they're separate. The Brethren of the Common Life were actually a Roman Catholic order that were pre-Reformation but had Reformation ideals. Hmm. And they largely shared those ideals through schools that they set up. So Luther was a student at um, Brethren of the Common Life. Erasmus was a student of Brethren of the Common Life. Thomas Akempis, who later joined um, the community, was a student of Brethren of the Common Life. So they have a huge influence on reformers. Mm. And of course, the, the greatest work 
that came from the brethren of the common life was Thomas Akempis's imitation of Christ. So we're, we're making our way through that, and it's been a, a fruitful class period. How about yours? Well, that sounds fantastic, Brian. I always love hearing about that religious history, well, history in general, but uh, especially religious history. So in our class, we actually screened the portion of an old film that was played during the World's Fair at the Billy Graham Pavilion, hmm. and it was called Man in the Fifth Dimension. Hmm. It was Billy Graham's take on what the scientific developments were at the time and how he bridged from all of these different venues of philosophy and science and biology into the gospel, hmm. showing that it had not lost its relevance. It was just a short section, and it's actually, you can find the presentation online for free at the Billy Graham Even Evangelistic website. They have a website set up where they have some of their older productions. And it was part of a section called Encounter at the World's Fair. And so it's just a small portion of what people would see when they would come to that pavilion. And honestly, Brian, it's inspiring to show the stature that the Christian community had in the culture at that time, mm. to be included in that type of a, of a venue and to be respected. And a lot of that came from the integrity and the passion and the godliness of Billy Graham. We don't have a culture that views Christianity on the same level as we did then. And so we talked about that, the difference between personal evangelism and mass evangelism. What is that exactly? Because the focus of the class, of course, is on personal evangelism. Mm -hmm. So after we viewed the film, we did some discussion questions. We looked at what is the importance of personal work? What does that actually mean? How can a Christian sort of step into that? What is, what is witnessing? What is sharing the gospel? Is it church membership? Is it giving people food and clothing? No, it's actually speaking, being a witness for Christ. And so we went through some of the elements of that to show this is not just something that happens unintentionally. This is an intentional exercise. And of course, we're using an old publication, older publications from the 90s, late 90s, that was used by Harvest out in California, Greg Laurie's church. And it was called G3 Tactics. Hmm. And Steve Wilburn and Greg, I don't know who developed what in it, but they collaborated together to make that happen to train people. And so that's one of the curricula that we're using, and we're making our way through that as well and sort of giving people practical tools to know how to take people from A to Z. Yeah, that's, that's amazing. Sounds so good, and I'm sure the students are blessed. Switching gears, Luke, you and I both know, uh, as we were doing research and looking into odd and yes. awkward at times web of Scientology, I, I I couldn't help but thinking there's just been a progression of weirdness. Yeah, you know, we started with Charles Russell, and, and okay, he was a guy that you know serious about the Bible, and and then you know went back and tried to rediscover you know these things, and and, and was off. Then we looked last week about Joseph Smith. And, you know, he was a guy who got wrapped up in visions and, you know, had some run-ins with the law and was eventually murdered while in jail. Well, this week, we're, we're, we're upping it. <laughs> we're upping it a little bit more. Because when we're talking about Scientology, you know, we're talking about the author, you know, the, mm -hmm. the inventor of this. You really can't 
dismiss it as a cult, obviously. It's not necessarily a Christian cult, but it's a cult that's popular because well-known people right. are part of it, primarily actors and musicians and such. It's also a big business. I mean, it's a, it's a multi-million dollar business. And you could also say it's a new religion. And so it really is one of those groups that are important for believers to know about, to understand, and with over 40,000 serious adherents, you know, worldwide, with a lot of them being high-profile people, right. it's it's important for us to know a little bit about. So like we, we are doing in this series, Luke, you're starting off by just giving us some little tidbits, some little things to spark the imagination, and then I'll jump into the history. Perfect. So I'm calling this portion, Did You Know? Mm-hmm. Because maybe you do and maybe you don't. And what it is is just five facts about Scientology that you may or may not have been familiar with. The first one is the founder of the religion was a well-known science fiction author. I'm going to leave the, the delineation of that to Brian because that's what he's doing in these shows. So I'm not going to mention who the founder is, even if you already know. Now, interestingly enough, the founder was well acquainted with Aleister Crowley, who, interestingly enough, was also well acquainted with the Beatles and a lot of other paparazzi type of things that were going on in the 60s. But Aleister Crowley is well known because he's the single most influential occult writer. And that's not cult, that's occult. So this is talking about satanic rituals. And I'm going to let Brian delineate more on that as well about what, what exactly Crowley was about. But this, I'll just say it like this. It wasn't a cordial friendship. It was a collaboration and it had some extremely demonic undertones and effects in the formative years of Scientology in the founder's mind. Number three, much of the internal structure of Scientology initially came from occultic rituals and worldviews. Mm -hmm. Let me just point this out real quickly, very quickly. A lot of times people, when they're talking about a particular person who's responsible for the founding of a religion, will try to find things like this and commit what's called the logical fallacy of guilt by association, right? Well, that's not a good thing to do unless you can demonstrably prove that there was more than just an association. So the association has to be something that is significantly formative in order for that to be used. We're not doing that kind of game here. This is something that was truly formative. And so we're not just throwing a word out there like, oh, you know, Anton LaVey, Alistair Crowley was every bit as bad as Anton LaVey in his influence and culture. The founder of this religion was right there in the middle of it, practicing the very same things that this man was putting forward. Number four, the spark for the founding, and this the reason I'm mentioning this is because it's very similar to the whole vision thing. It was originated in a near-death experience in which the founder saw a vision that laid the foundation for his construction of what he termed ultimately the operating thetan. We're going to talk more about that later on, but suffice to say, it's very odd that people who found false religions often found them because of visions that come from who knows where. And lastly, the science, the Church of Spiritual Technology. Now, this is, I think, something you'll find the most interesting. I did not know this at all until I dug into it. The Church of Spiritual Technology, which is a sister organization of the Church of Scientology, has engraved Hubbard's entire corpus of Scientology and Dianetics texts. These are the writings that are the found, they call them the scriptures on steel tablets 
and they're stored in titanium containers. But this is what's going to surprise you, because as I look at the analytics for the podcast, a majority of people in New Mexico are the ones that are listening to this. They're buried at the Trementina base. That's in New Mexico. That's just a couple of hours from Albuquerque in a vault under a mountain near Trementina, New Mexico. And I may not be saying that correctly. I know it means turpentine. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly. This is the crazy thing. On the top of that mountain, the Church of Spiritual Technologies logo has been bulldozed on such a gigantic scale that it is visible from space. <laughs> so that's a one weird fact. You want to take a weird field trip? Don't get yourself shot because it may be private property and it's got a community of only 184 people as of 2010. But make sure if you're going to go visit that you do it appropriately. Don't just wander out there because it's full of farmers and ranchers and you don't want to be on someone's land if you're not supposed to be. Suffice to say, it's out there and you can go see it. Mm, yeah. Great little introduction um, to to the, the wild world of Scientology. You know, what we're going to do is I'm going to give a, a, a summary overview of the founder, L. Ron Hubbard. And I'm not going to get off on too many tangents because there's so much craziness. But you just have to understand that L. Ron Hubbard um, had, you know, his fair share run-ins with the law and bankruptcy and banks and just strange activity that surrounding him, let alone his association, which you said to Aleister Crowley. He was born March 13, 1911, in Titan, Nebraska, and he died January 24th. That was yesterday, 1986, in Creston, California. We are we're recording one day after his his death day, if you mm. will. And a lot of strange occurrences happened in between that point. Oh yes. So he was born to a military family. His dad was in the military, and, and as you know, that goes with a lot of travel. You, you don't stay in one place too long. So though he was born in Nebraska, a lot of his early life, he was brought up in Montana, and then they moved to Seattle, and his mother was trained as a teacher, but because of all the amount of travel you do in a military family, you, you don't get necessarily settled as a teacher, so she, she took a job as a clerk, and he was the only child. By and large, it was a, a, a normal upbringing, you know, a, a teacher trained mom and military dad traveled a lot. So he seemed to have a normal childhood. And he was even in the midst of all this, able to attain the Eagle Scouts and Boy Scouts. So again, very, you know, apple pie, American pie type, right. type thing. Then the family uh, relocated to Guam. He started to get some weird ideas regarding people of different ethnicities the main thing is, though, that it, while he was in Guam and then when they came back to the States, he really started to get an interest in writing. And so he started to write short stories and little essays really to amuse himself because when you're traveling that much and it's hard to make friends and what have you. So he began his writing quest. He applied to the Naval Academy after graduating from high school but failed the exams later discovering that he had an eye condition called myopa. For those of you who don't know, that's where the light doesn't hit the retina as it should, but it kind of just stays at the, the front of the eye. And so you, you do have eye problems. So you, you would have trouble reading and seeing things, but it's odd that he became a writer. He enrolled at George Washington University, which is in Washington, D.C., but dropped out. Maybe because just academically, or he had his vision on something else. And, and that was at this time writing Pulp Fiction. So Pulp Fiction 
For those of you who don't know that terminology, it's usually called, uh, some people call it trash lit. Some people <laughs> call it romance lit. But his wasn't romance. His revolved around science fiction. So it's it's not high literature. It's really not even well written. And if I can give an example, this might be something people can tie into better. Think Edgar Rice Burroughs, Tarzan of the Apes, and all of his Tarzan and all of his John Carter of Mars. That's all pulp fiction, science fiction. It's the same kind of stuff and even generally the same era. Yeah. And, and, and it was made for a popular audience, you know, low reading level. They just wanted you to have fun and, and enjoy the read. So that's what he started to really write. And he told a lot of people around this time that, you know, he's a specialist in science fiction because he studied nuclear physics and was, you know, a trained scientist and so on and so forth. He was not. As a matter of fact, transcripts that um, historians have found showed that when he was at George Washington University, he was a very poor student, and, and maybe that's one of the reasons why he dropped out. But again, it could go back to his eye condition. In 1933, he met his first wife, Margaret Grubb, and they were married in April of that year. They had a miscarriage and then became pregnant and gave birth to a son who they called Nibs, and then a daughter, um, Catherine May, in 1936. And it was really during this early family period that he really started to pay attention to his writing. And he wrote for magazines and his first novel, which was called Buckskin Brigades. And it was published in 1937. And those of us who write know that you don't make a lot of money unless it's a, a bestseller. And so he, though productive, he wasn't earning a lot of money from his writing, so he, he was struggling with finances and finding little odd and in job and such of that nature. Well, things changed in 1938. 1938, he claims to have had a near-death experience during dental surgery. Doctors say it was possibly a reaction to the anesthetics or whatever, but he had a vision. As you pointed out, there was this vision, and in this vision, this experience, he started to if you will, be a conduit of information. And so his writing changed from pulp fiction to what more what we would call serious metaphysical and even what he was trying to say at the time, psychological. This is psychology. Yeah. All of this later, of course, was compounded into his book, Dianetics. And what's interesting about this he he is known to have been said that all this information that he's getting from these this vision or this insight or this psychological experience he had would be greater than the bible but that didn't stop him from writing you know, he kept turning his wheels at trying to be a popular writer and so he wrote a book called excalibur and he integrated his near death experience in this book as you can imagine as his writing changed from pulp fiction to quote unquote more serious works Publishers weren't biting. He had trouble getting publishers to, to get this. So what did he do? Doesn't have money. Doesn't have publishing interest. He moves to Alaska to see if he could have any good luck finding work there. Later says, okay, I just need to do what any anyone who's having difficulty, and I'm not saying this in the sense, <laughs> I'll join the military because, they're, they're, you know, not joining the military is a cop out, but you, you hear what I'm saying. It's like all these other things aren't working, so I'll join the military. And he did so in 1941. And he did stops in the Philippines and California and traveled around and trying to get ideas for his books and so on and so forth. But again, during his military career, he claims to have had more sicknesses, more, you know, I don't know if they were called visions, but more experiences 
where he had to come under the watch of a doctor. And the doctor watched him for three months and he goes, well, is he crazy? What's the deal here? Why, why is he sick? They didn't find anywhere. And then he got involved in a weird sabotage incident um, within the military. Um, very unclear, you know, did he, did he create the sabotage or was he in, you know, a witness of it? But nothing was really determined and he stayed within the military. Finally transferred to Monterey, California. Again, claimed to be sick having more of these experiences. So the military just said, you know what? We're not dealing with L. Ron Hubbard anymore. We're going to discharge you. And they do in 1945. By this time, he's taking all of these experiences, all of these, you know, quote unquote, visions and, and insights, these psychological insights. And he's starting to ruminate the beginnings of Dianetics. But as you can imagine, Luke, you know, his wife is looking at him with his children going, okay, you're not providing things. Are you well? Are you, what, what's going on? Are you doing a mental breakdown? So they leave him. So Hubbard moves to Pasadena, California, and he came under the influence of John Whiteside Parsons. And John Whiteside Parsons was a scientist. And you go, oh, well, that, that makes sense, you know. L. Ron Hubbard had an interest in science and he partners with a scientist. Well, the scientist, John Whiteside Parsons, was also a leading occultist who was a follower of Aleister Crowley, whom you said. And Aleister Crowley was a British leader, an occultist leader, which, as you pointed out, has satanic overtones and rituals connected with it. But Crowley deemed his religion Thelemia. And Thelemia was this new religion that kind of combined cult practices, occultists, with a hodgepodge of religious, you know, world religion overtones. And he put it in a blender and said, this is a new religion. And as you pointed out, there was a lot of satanic ritual connections. There was a lot of sexual uh, rituals that were involved in this. And so L. Ron Hubbard, gets mixed up with this John Whiteside Parsons guy who was a follower of Aleister Crowley. Well, it even gets more intriguing and the hole gets deeper. While in California, studying under this John Whiteside Parsons, Parsons' girlfriend is a 21-year-old lady by the name of Sarah Northrup. And L. Ron Hubbard starts to like Sarah. So he has an affair with John Whiteside Parsons' girlfriend, and at first, John Whiteside Parsons was going, okay, you know, I'm, you know, she's not my wife. My wife is over here. She's my girlfriend, if you will. And, and it was kind of, you know, looked over. And plus they were, you know, there was this ritual stuff that was going on. And so the affair was known. Hubbard and Parsons started to write together, tapping into astral writing, other ritualistic behavior, which, you know, we won't expound upon here. And later on, with another woman who was part of this group, her name was Marjorie Cameron, they set up a business called Allied Enterprises. And this is, if you will, L. Ron Hubbard's first foray into the business world. Well, as you can imagine, tensions grew between Hubbard and Parsons. After all, this is Parsons' girlfriend, even though she's 21 years old. And L. Ron Hubbard didn't like that there was tensions, and he truly believed he loved Sarah Northrup. 
So he ran off with Sarah Northup in 1946 while he's still officially married to his first wife. Um, so that puts him as a bigamist in the, the court of law. So he runs off, he gets married. And around this time, he starts having more deeper psychological things um, happening. So he started to use a type of self-hypnosis and with the astral writing, writing out his findings. And that was later published in what was called the affirmations. And he saw it as a way to release and deal with his, his mental anguish. And he did around this time start seeing as a psychiatrist for, for mental illness. Well, he has a new wife. He says, I have to start supporting her somehow. So I'm going to go back to writing. So he started to write again. He wrote some novels, The End Is Not Yet, To The Stars, and, and other magazine articles, and so on and so forth. But the mental illness was still really plaguing him. So he went to the VA, the Veterans Hospital, and said, hey, you guys need to help pay for this. I obviously got this when I was in the military. And the military says, no, we have all the notes from the doctors that were in charge of you and they found nothing wrong, you know, with you. So they refused to pay. So again, money's tight. So in August of 1948, he was arrested for theft. You know, he's, he had to steal. And again, it wasn't a, a he didn't rob a bank. It was a, it was a small theft, but um, he was ordered to pay a fine at the time. But it shows that he was hard on cash and just mentally just maybe not completely there. But it was after that incident where he was arrested that he, he said, okay, I've got to deal with this mental anguish and I've got to get this book out that's been with me for these years. And so he started in earnest writing what we now know is Dianetics. And he claimed it was a book about psychology, how to work through problems, um, you know, and, and deal with life on that. And he also started to publish on the same themes about Dianetics in magazines and in other articles. Interestingly enough, here's, here's what he said about Dianetics. The hidden source of all psychosomatic ills and human aberration. So, you know, I found the key to unlock what ails depression or mental illness or whatever of that. He basically says, I, in this book, I'm giving you the skills for their cure. He says, skills have been developed for their invariable cure. So not only is he said, I've gotten insight in what it is, but I'm going to show you how to cure it. Well, the book became a bestseller because a lot of people deal with mental illness. A lot of people deal with depression. So it had great commercial success. And in a sense, it started this, this nationwide cult through this book. And by 1950, it had already sold 55,000 copies and that was 4,000 copies a week. So it was, it was flying off the shelf. And just a note on that, that book, if I remember what I read, they were selling it for, I think, $500 a copy at one point. And they talked about all they were doing is pulling out checks for $500 out of envelopes that people were sending in to get this book. So this yeah. was not a cheap book and it was selling very quickly. Yeah. So. And I remember it's probably you do Luke growing up. We used to see commercials selling and promoting this, you know, book, but obviously the professional world, the scientific and medical, medical professionals took a very dim view of, of this book. The American psychological association said none of his findings are supported by empirical scientific evidence. 
The Scientific American said, more promises and less evidence per page than any publication since the invention of printing. <laughs> the New Republic said, a bold and immodest mixture of complete nonsense and perfectly reasonable common sense taken from long acknowledged findings and disguised and distorted by a crazy newly invented terminology. Mm -hmm. And of course, Isaac Asimov, who was truly the greatest living science fiction writer at the time, a brilliant man in and of themselves, called it gibberish. So it didn't have a lot of... Not well-reviewed. Not, <laughs> not, not back... Well, but with common people who were dealing with, you know, again, mental illness, depression, so on and so forth, they started to buy it. As you just pointed out, it brought L. Ron Hubbard some financial success, but a lot of people started to question his teachings. And as we just read some, the reviews were very poor. And this led a failure to his marriage. Sarah said, see you later. I'm out of here. And she took her daughter, their daughter, Alexis, and they were divorced in 1951. He went into bankruptcy because overspending, unfulfilled promises, and all of that. Well, he was saved by a millionaire by the name of Don Persess, who lived in Wichita, Kansas, and he bought the rights for Dianetics and started to promote it and to re-give it a new life, if you will. So Hubbard was kind of the consultant for this guy. He married 18-year-old Mary Whip, L. Ron Hubbard did, and moved to Phoenix, and he started to help re-promote and reinvent Dianetics, but had many issues along the way. And his story could keep going on and on, but we're running out of time. He had issues both in the U.S., in France, everywhere abroad. And he finally went into hiding because of all the financial and difficult issues that were going on. He later divor divorced Whip and married another lady, uh, Mary Sue. And in 1975, he moved to Florida. All of a sudden, he changed careers around this time. He decided he was going to be a composer. So he started to compose mu music for the Church of Scientology, which was birthed out of this movement. And he called him space jazz. He, he just started to really focus in on music during this time. Deep controversy, deep issues, financial problems, everything plagued him towards the end of his life. He dies in 1986 in Creston, California due to a stroke and pancreatitis. So that's a little bit of history about the man who founded Scientology. Now, Luke, it is your turn to tell us about some of their core beliefs. So that being said, that was an excellent run through. And as Brian said, that rabbit hole goes really deep and we didn't even scratch the surface because there's just not enough time. So the information that I've gotten here, there's a lot of different perspectives that people use to come sort of at the Church of Scientology. I'm not discounting those perspectives. I'm not confirming the perspective of the Church of Scientology towards itself either. But I've tried to be as honest as I can in the representation of the church itself in its own words in some places. There's a couple of different things here that are stated on the church website, if you want to call it a church. It says, fundamental to Scientology is the view of man as a spiritual being in Scientology. The spiritual being is called the Thetan. The term is taken from the Greek letter theta for thought or life or the spirit, and it's used to avoid confusion with previous concepts of the soul. So that tells us that 
Hubbard in all of his writings articulated a different idea of the soul. He didn't reject the immortality of the soul, but his understanding of exactly what it was and the mechanics of spirituality really take a strange bend in his articulation of this belief system. But it states that uh, the soul, the Thetan, is immortal and has lived and will continue to live throughout countless lifetimes. One is a Thetan who has a mind and who occupies a body. The Thetan, or the soul, animates the body and uses the mind. Now, where this gets really strange is that L. Ron Hubbard, in his articulation of this, states that Zanu, this intergalactic creature, and he refers to him as this, sent a group of Thetans or a group of what would effectively be aliens from this intergalactic group that he mentioned several times in just some summary ideas, sent these people or aliens to Earth and blew them up with hydrogen bombs. They're, and I'm not being silly. I mean, this is literally what's said to have happened. The bodies were, of course, disintegrated, but the spirits of these individuals were trapped here on Earth and ultimately became the souls or the Thetans that animated humanity. So humans are Thetans of these earlier creatures who are immortal, who have, through ages of various, quote, truths, unquote, have become something less than they used to be. In other words, the body that we're living in and the cultures that have developed in Earth and all the religions that have developed have stripped man, Thetans, as man, of their memory of what it was to be basically like a god. Now, it's interesting that this is very similar to how Mormons think. So we don't know how much of an influence there was there. But there's some other parallels we're going to get into, and I'm not going to take a lot more of your time, but I do want to get through some things. I'm going to read some things verbatim because you need to hear them. They say that basically the Scientological process, the the essence of the religion, is for man to reclaim what he has lost in becoming trapped in this physical body. Now, some of the tenets of that are man is an immortal spiritual being. We've talked about that. His experience extends well beyond a single lifetime. His capabilities are unlimited, even if not presently realized. So there's this idea of spiritual maturation. And this is really what Scientologists cling to the most. And rather than being a system of religious ideas, in fact, they were rather opposed to any religions at all initially until they realized how necessary that language was. L. Ron Hubbard's perspective is that he takes a, quote, scientific approach to spirituality while preserving a lot of the older ideas of what spirituality is. This is why people in the modern world, especially in the 50s and 60s, were very wide open to this kind of thing. It was a very appealing thing. Imagine, since people generally feel the same about themselves, no matter what religion they're in, because they're sinners and they have guilt and they have shame and they have all of these other issues that are plaguing them. Imagine if someone came to you and said, hey, listen, there's a way to fix this and I know what it is. And it's not about going off and following any particular deity or any God. It's about these things that I myself have gone through and I have rehabilitated myself and I have the secret of how this has to happen. And if you want to take my courses, 
I can teach you how to become a better human being. I can teach you how to overcome drugs. I can teach you how to overcome addictions. I can teach you how to, and there's all these types of things that are promised. And man, it sounds good because it's not that people don't know that we're broken. There are cults that capitalize on the brokenness of man and think that they have been able to propose a sufficient solution to it outside of Jesus. So just so you know, the tenets of their religion, they do not accept Christ as deity, obviously. They don't accept any deities per se, outside of whatever the Thetan is. They do not accept the idea of heaven and hell. They believe that man's salvation is dependent upon himself. And the process, you know, and that's a pretty old trope as it is, but the process by which man saves himself is this scientific approach to spirituality, whereby man, through the articulation of L. Ron Hubbard and his stuff, becomes the person he's supposed to always be. And he sort of strips away what it means to be a human in the classic sense of the word and becomes something bigger, becomes something better. He transcends himself by returning, at least spiritually, to his proposed original state as a full-fledged Thetan who was a creator of universes. I know that part sounds hokey, but once you're deep enough into this stuff, that kind of thing can make sense. I'll show you this. This is a definition that came from a, a website that's associated closely with the Church of Scientology. It says, the goal of an operating Thetan, that's someone who's reached this spiritual maturity level, is to overcome the travails of existence and regain the certainty and abilities of one's native spiritual beingness. At this level, one knows that they are separate and apart from such material things as physical form or the physical universe. So it's offering you a new sense of you. What does it mean to be you? You're not your body. You're not your mind. You're something different. Okay, so there's a lot of, again, there's a lot of religious stuff that happens here that's from all these Eastern mysticism things. And there's also some elements of Christian ideas in here. This operating thetan is the state of spiritual awareness in which an individual is able to control themselves and their environment. They are someone who knows that they know and can create positive and pro-survival effects on all of their dynamics. They have been fully refamiliarized with their capabilities as a thetan and can willingly and knowingly be at cause over life, thought, matter, energy, space, and time. As a being becomes more and more of an operating thetan, they become more stable, more powerful, more responsible as a spiritual being. There's a lot of self-help language in here. And of course, the crucible of mental illness through which Ron Hubbard was going, and potentially even demonic possession, if you read deeper into the stories that are about him. The things that he went through, whereby he's, quote, realizing all these truths, seem very appealing to a lot of people. Who doesn't want to be a more powerful, more stable, and more responsible spiritual being, right? He's not denying the spirit. He's not in the sense of man's spirit. He's not denying the spirit, spiritual dimensionality of man, but he's trying to articulate a new way in which that is utilized. So at the heart of Scientology lies axioms that precisely define the fundamental laws and truths of life, including who we are, what we are capable of, and most importantly, how we might realize our native spiritual abilities. These axioms form the foundation of a vast body of wisdom that applies to the entirety of all life. From this wisdom has come a great number of fundamental principles people can use to improve their immediate lives as well as to achieve spiritual immortality. Who doesn't want that, right? In fact, there's no aspect of life that cannot be improved through the application of Scientology principles. And there's the key of why this is so appealing. So people are doing this stuff because they have confidence in the actions of a single man to have been there and done that. Now, suffice to say, all of this stuff that they're saying, this is what our religion does, 
is nothing more than a glorified self-help book. And it may have some positive effects because there's a lot that can be accomplished through self-discipline. But you're never going to have eternal life through self-discipline. You're never going to save yourself from your sins. Even if you learn how to, through self-discipline, mitigate negative things in your life, that's not the same as being saved. And so what we find, as we talked about in Mormonism last week, is not that there's this new, unique, workable solution, but there's another spin on someone else trying to come in and stand in the place of Christ as the only sufficient way to salvation and telling somebody, lying to them, that they can save themselves through self-effort, regardless of what that self-effort looks like or from whence it originated. There's a lot to be said for the satanic nature of that type of thing, because it's ultimately a deception that's going to cost someone their spiritual eternity with God. Now, I want to say this, and then I'm going to wrap up, because I know this has been a little bit long. One of the things the Church of Scientology does is it sells courses to people who want to start this process. You can enroll in I'm not saying that you should. They offer an enrollment option on the Church of Scientology website, and it introduces you to all of these truths that you have to go through. Now, what I noticed as I observed some of these things that were originally kept secret and copyrighted, they may still be, there were people that released them. I got a hold of some of those files. I've read through them. Effectively, folks, it tells you a different way to think. It's basically a self-taught brainwashing course. And they go through all of these different tenets and they talk about how you need to view particular things. They teach you to teach yourself how to change your perspective. And as a result of that, you're basically engaging in self-deception under the auspices of the Church of Scientology, all the while they're promising you spiritual liberty. It's a very dangerous and very insidious thing. And it's not like, well, go out and give alms to the poor. It's literally psychological techniques. All of it is. And I, we don't know if this is what's, what happened when Hubbard was under psychological care for paranoid schizophrenia or whether it was from some other thing that he arrived upon himself. But people you literally feed this into their minds. Some of it involves what we would call a, a tacit self-hypnosis to try to bring them to a particular perspective that at least gives them the illusion of being free from all of this anguish that's in their lives, which many people are very responsive to. Yeah, Luke, I was, um, we have a neighbor. I won't say her name, of course. And she's no longer a neighbor of ours. And um, she was heavily into Scientology and mm. Dianetics. And she had a room designated. So we went over one time and she's invited us in and we looked around and, oh, nice, you know, everything. I looked up and there, a tag above the room, you know, designating it as such. And that's exactly what it was. It was like electroshock with self-hypnosis. And it, it was something where she was trying to reprogram her thinking process. And it was a very, very strange experience. You know, just going, really? And there's, in, in some cases, there's a machine in there. It's, it's, yeah. it's very interesting. No, it's true. And there's this thing called the e-reader mm -hmm. that, that is used that was, it, I'll just say this, it is of dubious origin and effect. It's nonetheless still currently used by the Church of Scientology. It's been upgraded significantly. But if you study the history of psychology and intellectualism in the 1940s, 50s, and 60s, this is where you have some of the stuff that Ted Kaczynski complained about, the Omega Project and stuff like that that was supposedly going on at Harvard. There's mm -hmm. all of these psychological intelligence services were supposedly employing mediums to try to find stuff. There's just a lot of dabbling and experimentation with this. So this is why there's such a huge interest in his work 
because he puts it together in a way that wasn't really done before. Right. And it appealed for a number of reasons to a lot of people. I want to finish up with this particular excerpt. I have a copy of something that was originally denied to exist by the church because it was the last manual that was given. They're called rundowns. They have these courses and they provide a prescriptive manner by which you're supposed to cleanse yourself from various elements of your current understanding of humanity, like who you are, your a redefinition of self that you're imposing upon yourself through these methods. And I ran, I went through the rundown. I'm not going to talk about that. I don't have time to. The part that precedes that is extremely telling. And this is why this is not just a novelty. This is a very dangerous system. And not just because it disagrees with us, because of why it disagrees with where we're coming from. Okay, so remember, this guy's associated with Crowley, who's a huge occultist. He's in direct communication with demonic spirits, which arguably is where his ideas even come from. He's dealing with astral projection, astral travel. These things are all, we're not going to dig into that, and I do not encourage you to go dig into more of that. But suffice to say, these are occultic practices whereby you are very likely subjected to demonic influence and potentially and largely subjected to demonic possession as a non-believer. In this, he begins to exhibit these characteristics and he begins to be this prophet for other people to follow into the spiritual maturation journey that he promises them. But this was his last thing that he wrote This is copyright 1980, so just six years before his death. And there's multiple versions of this. The church has since gone back, and by the church, I mean the Church of Scientology. They've gone back and sanitized it. This is one of the unsanitized versions that the church was forced through court to acknowledge belonged to them because of copyright issues. Mm -hmm. I'm going to read you just a last portion of this. So he says he's writing, and by the way, there's lots of typos, but um, that's another issue. No doubt, he says, you are familiar with the Revelations section of the Bible where various events are predicted. Also mentioned is a brief period of time where an archenemy of Christ, referred to as the Antichrist, will reign and his opinions will have sway. This man was not ignorant of the Bible Mm -hmm. in the literary sense. All of this makes for very fantastic, entertaining reading, but there's truth in it. This Antichrist represents the forces of Lucifer, literally the light bearer or the light bringer, Lucifer being a mythical representation of the forces of enlightenment. Now, I want you to think about that spin. The Galactic Confederacy, that's the whole Xanu thing, which he intends to to say these people are going to bring enlightenment to Earth. My mission, he's talking about himself, could be said to fulfill the biblical promise represented by this brief Antichrist period. I want you to think about that statement. He wrote a letter to his son, specifically identifying himself as the Antichrist. And it said when Crowley died, that he saw himself as the heir apparent, and in one of his journals wrote that he was taking over the mantle of the beast. That's his own words. Mm -hmm. So you pair that with paranoid schizophrenia, which in many cases is misdiagnosed demonic possession. There are medical conditions. I'm not denying that. You put that together, and then he says this. During this period, there is a fleeting opportunity for the whole scenario to be effectively derailed, which would make it impossible for the mass Cabian landing, the second coming, to take place. The second coming is designed, among other things, to trigger a rapid series of destructive events. Now, I want you to hear this part. He says that he himself is going to return as the Messiah. Listen to this. 
He states that the things that are portrayed in the Bible and all other religions, with the potential exception of original Buddhism, of which you find much in his ideas of spiritual maturity, the Antiman, the no-self, he says this, I will soon leave this world only to return and complete my mission with another identity. Although I long to stretch my arms back and repose on some distant star in some distant galaxy, it appears that is one dream that will have to wait. But my return depends on people like you doing these materials thoroughly and completely so that there will be a genetically uncontaminated body for me to pick up and resume where I left off. A body free of religious mania, right and wrong dichotomy, there's Nietzsche for you, and synthetic karma. The job ahead is far too tough to even contemplate doing with your standard, courtesy of other dimensional certain players and their macabre pieces, many of whom are right here in the general populace. I will not return as a religious leader, but a political one. That happens to be the requisite beingness for the task at hand. I will not be known to most of you. My activities will be misunderstood by many, yet along with your constant effort in the Theta Band, I will effectively postpone and then halt a series of events designed to make happy slaves of us all. So there you have it, the secret that I have kept close to my chest all these years. Now you two are a part of this secret, and I no longer have to shoulder the burden alone or live with the possibility of a body death before all the data to be released. Now, as far as I'm concerned, that came right out of the mouth of the devil. It is definitely a human being who is, first of all, deceived greatly, disturbed, on another level, you know, the mental illness is, is even, you know, there. So he's deceived and he's disturbed, but it's damaging. Yeah. And it's damaging to a lot of lives. And as you know, Luke, um, again, it's not, it's not like uh, the level of Mormonism or Jehovah Witnesses with adherence. It's presence out there through, you know, popular media figures is damaging. And I know, as you have, Luke, I've watched interview after interview of people who got right. involved and they've, you know, they had to basically get, you know, restored back to normalcy. Mm -hmm. um, and they've come out and they've been blacklisted and blackballed. And it really is a very damaging uh, worldview. Exactly. There's only a couple of reasons why a human being would ever identify with the Antichrist and be speaking in the first person. And I almost felt like I was getting a preview right there when I was reading this stuff that he was writing back in 1980 about what the devil really wants to do and what he is telling people is going to happen. He thinks he's going to win. That's what Armageddon's all about. So there's for someone not to be a Christian and to have that level of identification with that narrative is extremely disturbing. Mm -hmm. Lastly, I'll say this. We've gone through a lot of stuff. I know we're a little over, we're well, probably a little lot over time at this point. But I went to their website particularly. The fellow who was... Hubbard's protege is the current leader of the Church of Scientology, which he has modernized, and it is now currently labeled to be one of the fastest growing religions. It's currently also, according to them, the only major religion that was ever founded in the 20th century. Mm -hmm. And that may be a, a bona fide claim in the sense that they have churches in 167 countries at this point, or at least meeting centers. I hesitate to call them churches, but that's their terminology. But I'm telling you, the website was slick. Mm -hmm. And I listened to the entire video. It was about 10 minutes. And he's talking about what they're about. And he's like, there's no nothing hiding here. We're going to bring you in and show you everything. He said, we're not trying to convert you. We're not trying to compel you. He said, we're just going to show you what's going on. You make the decision for yourself. And then he said this. He said, because the core tenet of our understanding is that none of this is true unless it's true for you. Mm -hmm. And I was like, 
you can't get any more, more postmodern than that. Mm-hmm. But it also allows the complete subjective openness under the auspices of finding the truth, under the auspices of becoming a better person. They just lay it right on the table in front of you and act like they're not deceiving you. I watched it, you know, and I, I'm not a, I'm not a novice. And it, I'm telling you, it was compelling. All the stuff we talked about, that swept yeah, under the sure, rug. Sure. You're never going to hear Just it. Just like Mormonism. You yeah. remember when we had Caden in here, he goes, I, I didn't hear about any of his spurious activity. All we heard was about the visions and the good things. Yeah. Same thing with Scientology or any cult. You know, they're, they're not going to tell you that, you know. It's the, hagiography. Right. Even the current founder or the current leader, they write this same thing. Here's the interesting thing. Two people who were commissioned to do a biography of Halbert went in and got a hold of all this material, un- thinking that it was not going to have any effect on them, because that was one of the cardinal rules, is that you weren't supposed to think badly of L. Ron Hubbard. That means if you ever thought badly, that was a bad thing. It meant your perspective was wrong, and you need to go redo your course, mm-hmm. right? So it was cleansing you of any ability to be critical of someone who was obviously deeply flawed. These guys come along, and they get exposed to all of this stuff that we just read, and 10 times more, trust me, there's he wrote, according to the website, 70 million words, 500,000 pages of information. That could be hyperbole, but I don't know if it is or not. Suffice to say, there is a gigantic corpus of literature out there, and it's listed there on the website. These guys exposed to all this, and they leave the church because they discovered that he was effectively, uh, and some of his other biographers, I'm just going to see if I can find this one quote. I was going to end with, with this basically states that he was a pathological liar, that all of the things that were attributed to him were nothing more than smoke and mirrors put up by the Church of Scientology. Here it is. The evidence portrays a man who has been virtually a pathological liar when it comes to his own history, background, and achievements. The writings and documents and evidence additionally reflect his egoism, greed, avarice, lust for power, and vindictiveness and aggressiveness against persons who perceived him perceived by him to be disloyal or hostile. At the same time, it appears that he is charismatic, highly capable of motivating, organizing, controlling, manipulating, and inspiring his adherents. He has been referred to during the trial as a genius, a revered person, a man who was viewed by his followers in awe. Obviously, he is and has been a very complex person, and that complexity is reflected further in his alter ego, the Church of Scientology. Hmm. So, a very deeply flawed person, very deceptive person, but but man, you don't come across any of that. They're not even talking about that at this point. They've got a whole new system. They've got a whole new presentation. They've got a Scientology network that was launched in 2018 that's available 24-7. They're going great guns. And as we saw with Russell and and even Smith, their ability to get their information out there mitigates their general unknown status within the population. They are, their voice is far bigger than their population. And they do this on purpose. So simply because you're aware of it, a lot of people who are popular follow it. That shouldn't, in your mind, add any importance to this cause. It's it's deeply flawed. It's heavily associated with demonism, self-hypnosis, opening yourself up to spiritual forces that are not of God under the auspices of purging yourself of some false construct of self. This is sort of, we've done what we could to lay it bare. I know we've gone a little bit long. 
But um, it is something I would only recommend looking into with extreme caution because you can feel the deception all over it when you come across it. So that's that's as much as I've got, Brian. Yeah, and and great insight, and thank you for that that research, Luke. Um, amazing. And again, we didn't have anyone in here who came out of it. There's so much material online of, of former members who have come out of it. Some of them well known actors and actresses who have you know kind of tried to blow the whistle, so to say. So right. you could go and investigate some more. But thank you, Luke, for that, and thank you for leading in this new series. It's it, it truly is eye opening. Well, Brian, I appreciate all of your contributions on the historical side of it. I know that listeners find these things fascinating and nothing wrong with that, but always remember that these are in direct controversy to the truth. And we're not talking about this stuff so that you can go and entangle yourself with the deception of cults, but rather to expose them so that you will have the discernment when someone tries to lead you into something that you shouldn't be a part of. So that being said, we always appreciate your questions here. As you know, we're looking at the theme of cults and solutions. And the solution to this, of course, is showing them that works are not capable of saving you. And you're going to find that theme happening over and over and over again. But by all means, send us your questions to calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. Again, that's calvary.college at calvaryabq.org. Once again, thank you for listening.